Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. O-G. Make some noise! <laughs> Uh, my next guest is a music journalist, MSNBC contributor, uh, host, teacher, author, and a podcaster. His weekly podcast called Torrey Show has featured Kendrick Lamar, Vander Holyfield, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and many more. Uh, he's Torrey, and I want to welcome him to the library. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Uh, so as I mentioned, you've worn a boatload of hats in this industry in your career and your life. Uh, when did you decide that wearing many hats was the way to go or was that kind of like forced on you in a weird way? I mean, that's the nature of being freelance. You know, I mean, when I started in my 20s, I saw like you want to always have an assignment that you're working on and one that is coming next and then pitching one because you don't want to like just go station to station and like finish a story and then go out and pitch because the pitching process could take a week, it could take a month. You know, you could sit around for two, three weeks. And if you're sitting around for two, three weeks now, then in two or three months, there'll be a period when you don't have enough money. Right. So it was constantly like, try to get as many stories going as possible. And that just created a habit of like, you should just always have like a bunch of projects going so that when this project finishes, you can jump right into the next one. Um, and just sort of, just... I, I tend to have a lot of ideas and just be sort of trying to get them going and make them work and a bunch of things get nagged, but a bunch of things get accepted and you can live off uh, enough getting accepted. Did When you were pitching different stories in different uh, areas like journalism or even um, writing books uh, and even TV, did you find that kind of one media was more limiting than others and that's why you kept on kind of moving on or had a, a favorite uh, one or the other? I mean, no, I mean, I don't think one is more limiting than another. I mean, they are different. I mean, you know, in writing, uh, you know, for magazines or books, it takes a lot of time and thought to get it together. Television takes a lot less time and thought. I mean, if there's an, an issue that's new to you, you might want to sit back and read the book and, like, think it through. But once you've done that... It it goes pretty quickly. I mean, a television segment is usually five minutes, maybe right. ten tops. So, I mean, you're pretty much going to spit your thesis right away. You know, say you're, you know, a little bit of your game, 
you know, right away. And then before you blink, it's pretty much over. Um, whereas in magazines, you have to work much more um, and it takes much longer. So, I mean, you know, different mediums uh, require different sides of you or different different sorts of movements, I guess. When did you know you wanted to be, I mean, be who you are? I mean, be a journalist, be a music writer, be an author. Oh, when well, did you know? I mean, I think I thought about becoming a writer when I was in high school. And I know I thought more about becoming a writer when I was in college. And there was sort of a a moment that gave me the opening. I was a sophomore and there was this... I hesitate to even call it an incident because it really as as far as things go now and this was hardly an incident but it just it it just motivated me um the black student uh alliance uh contracted to have a party at this little student center and the contracts would delineate like exactly how long the party could go and like the time frame of it and we had signed for, let's say, 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. And at 10 p.m., the campus police came and said, we're getting noise complaints, you got to shut it down. And it was kind of like, like, what the hell? Like, that's yeah. lame. Like, so we thought to have a voice, We 20 of us will write letters to the paper and they'll have to print all of them and then we'll have a voice and we'll be able to speak back on this issue. And they did the right thing journalistically because our letters were pretty much the same. They combined them into one letter with 20 signatures. But I didn't know that that was fairly standard and normal. And none of us knew that. So we were offended. We were like, oh, we've been, you know, they've taken away our voice and right. reduced us to one instead of 20 uniques. And so I took it on myself to start a newspaper uh it was called the fire this time it was uh, eight pages big broadside i would design some black nationalist sort of cover like one of them was king getting the moment that dr king got shot that was mm. like in april um and you know another cover had like a big blown up picture of like the first black student at the college at emory uh, in the seventies marching for something, I forget what. So it was like, you know, very aggressive. And then there'd be like eight editorials in the magazine, in the newspaper. And I'd end up writing like five of them. Cause you know, most of the students were not like pressed to like stop and write an editorial. And I was like, you can write about something going on on campus or in the nation, you know, whatever. So occasionally, so like three or four people would come through with little editorials, but I had to write four or five each time. But it was a great experience, and it was fun, and it was engaging. You start to see um, – it, it's almost like Broadway in that there's a very direct relationship between you and the audience. Mm. And so you write something, uh, let's say Tuesday night, publishes Wednesday morning, and by mid-Wednesday to late Wednesday, people are telling you, I really liked that, you know, I didn't understand this line, or I disagreed with this line, or whatever – so you're really getting this direct feedback, and that was really powerful. I didn't even realize how powerful it was, because when you get into the real world, you write something for Rolling Stone or the New York Times, some people will say, oh, that was good, you know, and now that we have Twitter, people will tell you, like, 
how dare you say this line, right? right? But the Twitter responses are like, you know, they're just like way out of control. It's never like constructive. So, you know, it becomes more, it becomes a less intimate relationship with the audience. Um, but having that in college was really powerful. Um, was there any pushback? I mean, starting being from the college itself, starting your own newspaper or even the student no, body or? No, I don't remember any pushback from the college itself. I was able to run around and raise money from local businesses or uh, different administrators or different people around who believed in it. And I'm like, you know, I need a thousand dollars to get this next issue out or 2000, whatever it was. And always was able to come up with enough money to get it, um, to get it done. You know, I didn't make a dime uh, doing that. Distribute them on campus. Nobody from the, and the administration was fairly supportive of what I was trying to do. Um, so, no, they were cool. So when did you turn your, I don't want to say focus, but your, yeah. your writing into music. More music. Yeah, music. Well, when I got to New York City, uh, after my junior year, I left college and I came to New York, started in, uh, working in a restaurant and I was interning in, at Rolling Stone. And I quickly saw, like, I'm like 21, nobody's going to care about the political thoughts of a 21-year-old. But I can, I love hip-hop, I can talk about hip-hop, and I can use hip-hop in a way to talk about some of the political ideas that I have because hip-hop is so inherently political. Right. You know, a rock writer or, you know, somebody covering pop or soul music, you're not really going to get the opportunity to talk about politics in the same way because hip-hop is very much engaged with, you know, police brutality, you know, racial identity, uh, poverty, the war on drugs. So you can really talk about political ideas. So I started doing that. Um, started to tell you about hip hop because it was exciting and because it was an avenue to talk about politics. What was the, is there, was there a, um, when you, when you first were writing your piece uh, for Rolling Stone was, what did you want to write about? Did that come to fruition? Uh, and what did you actually end up writing about? Well, let's see. I was interning at Rolling Stone. So the idea was, you know, just answer the phone, make photocopies. We were like a free labor force. And I was like, I quickly saw, oh, this is not about letting us become writers or grooming us mm. to become part of the magazine. This is just about having a free labor force. So I was like, oh, well, that's not what I'm here for. Right. So... I would go to the other interns and tell them that they, the boss had said that they should do X task, which was the task that I had been given. Like, so she said she wants you to sit here and answer the phone for like the next half hour. Okay. Or she said she wants you to copy this stack of papers. Like, okay. And like, nobody ever questioned right. like, why are you why is this coming from you and not from her and um and so they always accepted and that would give me like a half hour or an hour to go around and like chat up the writers and the editors and meet them and got to know them and eventually got fired for being a bad intern which is like <laughs> ridiculous um but uh the editors liked me 
the music review, the record review editor liked me a lot. He was still a friend. And so he gave me a record review. Um, he gave me a story. I believe it was Naughty by Nature's second album. I believe that was the first one. There, There's also Belle Biv DeVoe's second album, and I can't recall which was first or second. So it was one of those two. But, I mean, around that time, I had done, like, one or two things in the Village Voice. I did a review on The Coup, and I did a review of Greg Tate's book, um, Flyboy and the Buttermilk for the Source, and there was something else for the Village Voice. So, short, all very short, like 500 words. But I worked really hard on those little short assignments. They mattered the world to me. And I think the folks at Rolling Stone saw a Village Voice piece and were like, oh, you wrote that? Like, oh, okay, that was cool. And you're in the voice. And, like, they respected the voice a lot. And so they gave me, you know, the little record review and they liked what I did. And they kept giving me more and more. I mean, with Rolling Stone, it was never like, I want to do this. It was like, I want to be in the mix. I want to be right. a writer. Like, you know, whatever you got. So I was... Over a few years of just climbing the ladder of like writing small record reviews and then eventually getting to write small features. I think the first feature I did was Run DMC on their comeback album, um, Down with the King, which was like, I mean, like I got the label to send me all their albums and I sat there and listened to like all the albums. Not that I wasn't deeply steeped in Run DMC already. I had already bought all these albums on the day of release, but it was like, okay, we're going to like super zone in and focus on Run DMC. Were you, like, were you listening to it on record, CD, or vinyl? CD. Okay. CD. So you're walking around the there. Mid-90s. Had <laughs> nice. a disc man. Had a second skip. Yep. Yep. <laughs> At that time, I would not leave the house without my disc man and big headphones. And uh, um, I remember sitting in the conference room and interviewing the three of them. And it was the first like big interview that I ever did. And it was, it just clicked and I just kept them talking and the questions were coming fast and they were good and the energy was high. And I remember at the end, Run stood up and said, dope interview. And he walked out and just walked out. He didn't say bye or anything. And I was like, <gasps> Run said it was a dope interview. Oh my god, that's the shit. And then I ran into them at the Apollo like a month after the story came out. And he very genuinely said, like, that was a dope story and I really appreciate it. And I was like, <gasps> and uh that gave me a lot of a lot of wind beneath the, the sails. But imagine you were nervous. Were you nervous at the time during the interview, or does that kind of go away? I wasn't nervous. I never really. There was one situation where I got nervous, and I'll tell you about it. But it wasn't really a. I wasn't really nervous because I'm getting into more of a sense of responsibility. You know, I have a finite amount of time with these guys. You know, there are lots of people who would like to be doing this. There are lots of people who really want to hear them respond to certain questions or whatever. So the sense of the responsibility of the moment is overwhelming me rather than um, a sense of nervousness. And, you know, when you're working in and around celebrities, it starts to become difficult to make you nervous because, like, 
I've seen a bunch of celebrities. I've talked with a bunch of celebrities at your level. You know, right. uh, what I I mean at this point, it would have to be somebody like somebody very very high, like Obama or something that might make me nervous. But even still, I don't know if I'd be nervous. I'd be like again, like the responsibility right. of the moment. Um, I think the first interview that Rolling Stone sent me on. And I already had a sense of how to do interviews because I'd done a bunch of them for the college paper. Like uh, Lenora Falani came to campus and I interviewed her. And um, uh, Faye Waddleton came to campus from Planned Parenthood and I interviewed her. So I had a sense of how I like to do interviews. So they give me a little feature on uh, Sandra Bernhard, right? When she was doing like, it wasn't a rap album, but it was a, badass wild punk singing album and she kind of had this sense of like i'm really black inside so they're like all right we'll send the young black guy to talk so we met at this little cafe in the west village um you know which is like right in the for folks who don't live in new york like right in the gay area in men in like lower manhattan I didn't know that at the time. It didn't matter, but just to give you a sense. Um, so we start talking. And the one thing was that that she, at that time, David Letterman was on. She had been on with David Letterman at 1230 when he was on at 1230 after Carson, oh, yeah. Yeah. right, on NBC. And she would go on there and she would smoke and she would you know, just be very out and like wild and Dave like couldn't control her and like, you can't smoke in here and you can't curse and you can't. And he's like freaking out and she's doing her wild thing. So I thought that's who she was. So I was prepared for her to come and do that thing. And I had prepared to respond to that thing. And she came and was very low key and professional and like, so, like, what do you need to know? And, like, I'm thrown off that she's being very normal. And so that threw me off. And then, like, 20 minutes into the interview, I realized my recorder was not on. That's, like, the biggest fear ever. Oh, it's the worst. <laughs> so it was, like, the embarrassment of being, like, you know, can we, like, go back? Because, like, some of the elemental questions I asked off the bat, and I need those. So do you and she's totally professional and totally cool, like, no problem. But I'm feeling more and more stress and anxiety, embarrassment, all these sort of things. And we kind of get into a stride. And then I'm kind of thinking, like, you know, surely younger gay and lesbian people will read, might read this, might be a fan of hers, and will want to know her thoughts toward them. So it's like... So, you know, for a younger gay person, like, what would you say to them? And she immediately goes to, like, me. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not. Right. But I'm asking for others. And she, and so now I'm denying right. as far as she's. And she said, um, oh, honey, when you figure it out, come find me. And I was like. Like, I'm really not. I'm just thinking about... Uh, but, like, that, like, ended that conversation. Like, I overstand you, and I see it in you, even though you don't see it in you. And I'm like... Uh. And, you know, so... So, you know, the story came out fine. Just the interview was a disaster. And that sort of... Just set the tone for, like, 
good to be on toe on your toes right. and ready for anything in the interview and not expect the person to sort of come in and be a certain way you have to come in with a completely open mind because if you don't have expectations then they can't surprise you right. and then you can better do the job and i think that's i mean it's probably a challenge if you like for if you're interviewing an artist and you only know them from their CD or something or their record, right? And then yeah, you meet them and like they could be the most aggressive person on their record, but then apparently like a sweetheart, well, but you're ready for the aggressiveness. So. Well, yeah, but I mean, like I try to not do that. So I'm not expecting you to be like you are on your record. I'm not not expecting you to be like that. I'm just coming into it open so that I, you know, so just to kill the expectations game, which doesn't really help you. I mean, the biggest thing for me, I expect them to be smart, which I think leads me to ask things that others wouldn't ask if they didn't think that the person was mm. smart. Um, I interviewed once Plies, uh, the Florida rapper for Fuse. And I remember the day before I was on Twitter and I was like, you know, so I'm going to interview Plies, you know, what do you guys think I should ask him, you know? And and I said, like, serious questions only. Because sometimes I throw that out and then I get, like, a bunch of joke questions. I'm like, right. you're just wasting my time. Right. Like, I don't need that. So people mocked the notion of serious questions for plies. Like, that in notion itself was ridiculous. I didn't think that was ridiculous at all. And so it had even more of a chip on my shoulder. I'm like, I'm going to show you guys. You treat the rapper seriously and like they're an intelligent person, you get more out of them. So Plies had done this thing where he picked out a girl uh, who came to one of his shows and he said, you, I'm going to give you a college scholarship. And people were like, whoa. And like, of course, people talked about this. And I was like, so was that real? Did you really give her a college scholarship? And he's like, yeah, I really did that. And, and it's like, why? And I think a lot of... Reporters would not have thought to ask why. Yeah. And he told this great story about his grandmother had said, yeah, this is great that you're doing well and you're making money, but if you're not doing for others, then it's worthless. And what are you doing for other people? And so he took that and said, okay, I'm going to give somebody a college scholarship. And, and that's me giving to other people. And... It was a really intelligent, heartfelt, thoughtful answer, and it really humanized him. I mean, right? We don't usually think of these rappers as having families. I mean, maybe they create their own nuclear family and push it out in front of you, like, you know, DJ Khaled, and we hear Blue Ivy on the Jay-Z records. But, like, think about their mom, their grandma, yeah. their brothers and sisters, and, you know, and, and it just humanized him in a really nice way. And um, I definitely always wanted to do that i mean i definitely noticed a lot of times some writers will sort of otherize the black rapper subject right. kind of talk about them in a way that makes them seem alien or different i mean the vibe of the story the interview was like you're so different than me right, right? and and that comes across in in small subtle nuanced ways and I'm like, you're my brother. You're my cousin. Like, I actually know I have people in my family who you remind me of. So you're not like 
other and weird. You're like, you know, in my tribe. And music journalism that posits these rappers as like other is problematic because it perpetuates the notion that we are different. And I wanted to, I wanted to bring it together more. I wanted people to feel like, you know, these are not other, these are not aliens, you know, these are human beings. Prior to, I mean, I just want to go back a little bit, but prior yeah. to um, leaving your junior year of college, yeah. how, this might sound silly, but how embedded were you into hip hop at the time? Like, were you, I mean, you know. I was all about hip hop. I, I worked at a record store near campus. Um, I mean, I, I facilitated bringing Chuck D to campus and spent like a whole day with him, which was transformational in its way. Um, I mean, I can just, I remember just sitting there listening to A Tribe Called Quest and Public Enemy and Poor Righteous Teachers and Karis One and, um, all about hip hop. So when did you start noticing, um, from a journalistic perspective that, like if you said that rappers were known, were other other was the, the conversation when did, I, when did i start noticing, noticing that? that and then when did you start wanting to change I, that i felt like i noticed that when i was when i got to new york and started reading a lot of rolling stone i was subscribed to rolling stone from about 14 years old but coming to new york i started to get a different perspective a little more critical perspective on media and just reading some of the stories like of the big white writers at the time and i was like i remember one story in particular about snoop and dre that just seemed very otherizing and like why is the writer constantly reminding us that he's not like them and he might read the story and be like reread his own story and be like what are you talking about and it comes across in small little ways there was another story about ice cube as i was coming up that was in rolling stone where the writer talks about the slang word Audi, right? And I think they spelled it wrong. I think they spelled it with an O, right, instead of the A. And they, and he said, nobody knows where this word comes from. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, this is part of my normal, like, language. Like, right. I might say I'm Audi. Like, people around me say. I remember it going from, like... Audi 5000 to like just down to out. I mean, like, what are you talking about? And it was just like people from outside of the hip hop culture writing about it is bad for the culture in general. And, you know, so I wanted to break through that. Um, I want to talk about one. You, you've interviewed, obviously, a shitload of people that it, the list is ongoing and impressive uh but one of your interviews on your podcast you did with rakim and you in the intro you declared him you said he was a genius uh that word today i feel is this thrown around like no other like a guy comes out with an album genius album first day you know Woo! on the charts i love the phrase instant classic instant classic <laughs> that, that's that's that's, that's, that's not that, a thing that, <laughs> uh legendary i love that one too um what is your definition of genius, especially in the context of Rakim? I mean, you know, I want to see a depth and complexity of thought that is extremely unusual among human beings. Like you are just thinking 
deeper, sharper, and more quickly and in a more complex way than most people. And, you know, sometimes genius is quickly apparent and sometimes it's a little harder to see um, right away. It doesn't have to knock you over the head with the first comment somebody makes. Um, but, I mean, you know, I've been talking to him on and off for four or five years for this book that we're doing. It's almost done. And it should be out this fall. <laughs> and, uh, um, he's, I mean, he's, 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 he's brilliant. I mean, the story is I almost crashed a car during the uh, story about... You did? Yeah. This oh, is, good. You know, this is all I got. I'm not going to stand up. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. Um, I mean, you know, he goes to record his first um, song. I think he was doing the melody um, at Marley Marl's house. And he just told me... Rakim just told me a longer version of that story. I'll, I'll truncate it, but... Um, he the thing was that they were sitting on the couch listening to the beat. Right. So when it came time to do his vocals, instead of going in the booth, he's like, "Well, I'll just sit here." And so he did his vocals sitting down on the couch. And Marley Mall was like, "That was great. Can you do it with a little more energy?" And he's like, "Okay." And they do it again and again and again and again. I think they did it like six, seven times. And Marley's continuously like, "How about you stand up?" How about you, like, get a little more into it? And he was like, it doesn't matter if I stand up. It doesn't, <laughs> like, this is what it's going to be. And, you know, you think about the Run DMCs and the LL Cool J's were shouters compared to Rakim. Right. Who always wanted a more calm vocal presentation. Um, but everybody was, everybody else was kind of shouting on the mic. So that's what was expected. So then Marley Mall called MC Shan, his main man, and was like, yo, come down to the session and help me out. So Marley, so Shan shows up, they talk, and then Marley leaves and Shan takes over. He's like, yo, I'm producing the session now. Like, what's up? Like, you know, great. Like, okay, that verse was great. Can we do a little more energy? <laughs> and he's like... Dude, this this is who I am. This is what I want to be. I don't want to be like that. Like, I'm this. They didn't... Uh, Shan and Marley, apparently, didn't really think much of the record because they thought it would put people to sleep because it was so low-key. And about a month or two later, Rakim runs into Marley Mall at a show or something. And Marley's like... Yo, big hug, big smile. And he's like, now I see what you're trying to do. And now I get it. And he's like, yo, I stuck to my guns and who I really wanted to be. And I didn't let, even though I was new in the game recording my first record, I didn't let the maximum producer in the game change me. And now he understands that I was right. And it's just sort of a gateway to the style that he has always used. How much of that? How much of that? Um, how much of the thinking behind what Rakim told you was really uh, not just about being his having his own style, but also being different than like, you know, like you go into hip hop and 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 uh, DMC talked about this with me, but he's like, you know, everyone's doing red, you want to do blue. Uh, how much of that was his thinking as well? That was part of his thinking. I mean, he talks about his he he talks about his brother 
who he idolizes always wanting to be different. So he understood that and sounding different and feeling different than others, uh, than everyone else was important. I mean, he, he holds himself above in terms of my ability, my intellect is greater, and my understanding of music is greater than all you guys. I mean, that is one thing that I didn't, I didn't know, um, that most people probably didn't know. I mean, he comes from an extremely musical family. His father uh, managed groups. Uh, his mother was an opera singer. His sisters are singing all the time in the house. His brother was a killer on the jazz piano. His other brother was rocking the jazz saxophone. You know, other people would come over and just play music with them in the basement. So, I mean, there's always music going on in his house, and he's the youngest of five. And he is taking this energy and this sense of being good at music and his older brother throw a saxophone in his hand when he's four and just play that shit, you know, or just, you know, he talked about playing sax behind his brother's back and, uh, you know, finally his brother finds the reed is broken. He broke my reed, stay off my sax. And his mother comes and she's like, oh, that, oh, he's really good. Like he can play anything you could play. And like, just by ear. Amazing. And his brother's like, really? Like, let's see. And the family is constantly encouraging him. Like, it seems like anything he does musically, the family's like, that was great. That was great. And is that because he's a prodigy or is that because they are encouraging of him and or each other? Um, and I, I don't know. I can't split that. Maybe it's maybe it's a little both. Um, you've done, obviously, as I am going to keep mentioning incredible inter many interviews, uh, you've interviewed Jay-Z, Nas, Tupac. Uh, there's this argument, right, that people have that if Biggie and Tupac were still alive today, and I know that the direction of hip hop wouldn't have changed where it is today. Do you, do you, when do you buy that? Or, I mean, as, or as fans, do we think from what you know, do we think that artists have more control over kind of the direction of sound than we hope they do? I don't know. Uh, I can't even call that. I mean, the fans have more control over the direction of the sound than you realize. I mean, what they buy, what they gravitate toward um, is definitely going to shape things. And look, people get tired of the previous stars. I mean, as great as Big and Pac were, people will get tired eventually of the same person. Like Lior Cohen once said this to me. Um because, you know, it's really about the opinion of 16, 17-year-old boys. That's the center right. of the whole thing. And you get no points from your friends by saying, yo, the new Jay-Z album is dope. Like, no shit. Every Jay-Z album is dope. You get points from either correctly being the first to say the new Superstars album is whack, right? That's a different yeah. opinion. Or... This group you've never heard of is dope. Or this rap you've never heard of is dope. That you get points for. So, I mean, eventually, no matter how great these guys are, the audience would tire of them. I mean, an audience that is lionizing, you know, these all these lulls that we have today, with, you know, they want their own thing. They don't want their older brother's 
rap. They want their own thing. So, you know, there's there's natural impediments that just time itself would impose. Do you think there's there's always going? I feel like yeah, obviously there's always going to be this fight gener- generationally of like you know old school versus new school. Uh, what's better? And then you say your piece, and you sound like the angry old guy. Uh, oh, I know. It's the worst. I mean, you know, I, I look at the class of rappers today and I'm like, you know, get off my lawn. You know, most <laughs> of you guys aren't shit compared to what we had. I mean, I kind of have a theory of that, you know, the the Jay-Z, Eminem, Nas era reached a sort of maximum density in terms of the complexity and the amount of words that they were putting into a given verse. Right. So, which was an improvement or or a movement toward greater complexity from versus the previous generation, but they reached maximum density. You can't get more complex than that. You can't get more words in the verse than that. So, obviously, the direction had to go in the other way. And those of us who've been looking at it for a long time might say these are lesser rappers, but. I don't know if lesser is exactly the right word. It's more like these are rappers who are using more space, who are using fewer words, who are doing more repetitive things, um, relying more on the ad libs to fill the space and create a sort of conversation between themselves. Um, But of course it had to get less dense because it couldn't get any more dense. But do you think that going on that, do you think the complexity actually comes with not not the rappers, but with the beats and the with what they're doing with. I mean, you talk to some engineers, you know, who like did mass, you know, like Master Ace album or something, and they said like what they're doing with the eight hundred eights, like we never even dreamed that we would do. And so you have, granted, you do have like these simple beat producers, but then you also have producers that are doing stuff with these machines that when they first came out, that no one has ever thought that it would ever be done. Um, I mean, you know, there. I mean, yeah, there's a great producer class. Um, going on now a lot of people who are doing really interesting music um i mean you know look this is youth music i'm 47 i like a lot of it but a lot of it just doesn't move me partly because i'm older i mean you know i want to hear people talk about family you know if you have a family talk you know so when when jay-z does uh, the Everything is Love album with Beyonce. And a lot of it is about how he relates to her, how he loves her, how he deals with being in a fight with her. You know, the kids are in the cosmology of this album. Like, I, I like that. I appreciate that. I'm looking at others like Kanye, like, you never talk about your family. Right. Like, and not that I want you to do a whole song about Kim, but like, you have a wife. You've been married for a while. Like, you know, having a wife is a thing. You got three kids. You got a lot of freaking kids. Like, talk about that. Like, just you don't have to do a song about West, but or North. Which was it called? <laughs> North, North, North. I North. But I mean, like, you can reference being a dad in a clever way that brings it. Uh, that's what I want to hear because I'm a 47 year old father. You know, like the younger guys who were like, yeah, we're at the club and we're driving the Bugatti and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, 
that doesn't move me. But if I was 23, it probably would. It's youth culture, you know? And so I, I don't want to be too critical of the youth culture when I'm like, the part of the problem is that you aged out of it. <laughs> I mean, I definitely am excited when I find that I can appreciate and love somebody new. I remember when, when Tyler, the creator in them, came out, and that was like an instant phenomenon, and it was different. Right. And I'm like, okay, I like this. Like, I genuinely <laughs> like this. Like I, it's like your sea legs. Like, I still have my hip-hop like ears. Like, I could still flow with this. Um, I loved Odd Future. Um, you know, I'm into City Girls. Um, you know, I like Migos. I love Yachty. So, I mean, like, I can get with a lot of this newer stuff, you know, which I'm like, still in it i don't know maybe in 10 years i'll be like what is this i can't why did i ever like this i don't know i've been trying to get into new stuff but the problem is is i have a google play in my phone mm-hmm. and when it's and i have two kids so mm-hmm. five, five and three kids. five and three so we're just not sleeping um no, no. but it's just like i get it and then i start listening and it's just to me not 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 exciting i yeah. guess so I just put on DMX's first album, The Introduction, and I'm like, all right, let's go, people. Time to wake up. <laughs> and then I walk through Penn Station. I'm like, I'm going to fuck someone up today. I don't yeah, know right. who it's going to be. Uh, but, then I, but, there, you know, but there are people out there. That, I mean, I, I, like, I like Joey Badass, uh, this guy, y, uh, YBN Corday. Okay. Um, who I told about my friend who's a, who is my age, but he, you know, he's a, he likes more the newer stuff. And I told him about this guy, and he thought I was trolling him. Like, he thought I was making him up. I was like, no, no. He's like, Sky Zoo and Joey Badass in one. Don't worry about it. He's like, really, really good. Uh, <laughs> I want to go back one thing about uh, uh, genius and and not about the, uh, a lyricist being a genius, but but, uh, but a producer being a genius. Uh, you interviewed, you recently interviewed Pete Rock. Um, how do you, how do you define uh, a producer as a genius? Like That's a great question. Um Harder for me because I am primarily a word-based person, so I can more easily identify that string of words was really brilliant versus my wife is more visual, other people may be more auditory, so they can hear a group of sounds and be like, wow, that that's an amazing group of sounds as opposed to that group of sounds. I don't know. I mean, you know, Pete Rock has made... So many really smart records pulling from, you know, a a variety of sources. I mean, you know, when you had uh, producers who were making records that were based on four, five, six songs rather than one, it seems much more challenging and complicated. And to create a sound that is cohesive and such that we know whose sound it is without being told, yet can be repeated in multiple different ways and yet is different than what everybody else is doing. So like when Timbaland comes out, you know, it changes sound because it's totally different. Pharrell, totally different. RZA, totally different than what everybody else is doing Um, and complex and unique to them. You don't need to be told this is a Pharrell record. It's a RZA record. You know, you can hear it. Um, I mean, those are brilliant uh, gestures. Uh, did you have you ever uh, heard that uh, the Jay Dilla documentary on the BBC? The I don't know. Guy? I have not. It's kind of talk. It points out to what you just said about six records and one, you know, 
for one track. And uh, there's a great story that uh, I think his brother tells that they're in, you know, they're in Detroit. Uh, they just got out of the club. He's with like the Roots. They go back to his house, you know, basement and apartment. Um, it's like three in the morning, and he goes, "I'm gonna play you this sound. I'm gonna play you this new this new track I'm working on." And he literally goes like, he starts putting out records, and he goes, "All right, that note." Record and then puts another record. All right, that note takes up a record, and then any like seven records in, and he creates like this whole entire. And he talked about his genius of you know just having that ear to being able to just do this, this, and this, and create that amazing beat that kind of just like oh, okay, oh yeah, okay. oh you're a genius. I'm not. Don't worry about it. Um, what is the you 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 have a podcast now yeah. uh, for 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 a minute yeah. Um, what have you found or have surprised you uh, that, as a journalist that you're able to, to do in the podcast that maybe you have not been able to do before? Well, one of the big things that I wanted to do was talk about process because I wanted this to be about success um, for a show. And so you have to talk about process. And like generally when you go out for Rolling Stone, I'm not talking to Tony Braxton about how you write, how you sing. There's been, I've done some writing about how Jay-Z raps, but for the most part, you're not doing those sort of musicological, technical discussions. And that's part of what I want to do here. How do you practice singing? How do you write a song? How do you sing? Like, take me in the booth. What are you thinking about and doing while you're in the booth? Um, you know, with Taraji P. Henson, a lot of it was... How do you act? Like you know, I mean, there were so many with her. There were so many questions about acting. She was like, "Boy, I'm about to charge you for this lesson," <laughs> you know. And then she's like, "If I see you on set with Denzel or whatever, I'm gonna like like I was just trying to download the entire acting <laughs> book out of her head, um, you know. Or with Tony, like, how do you practice? Um, you know, I, I just want to know those sorts of things from these folks. So that's been a big deal. I mean, you know, I've learned, you know, the podcast should be a little bit more even. Like if I do a straight up interview, and I don't do this well enough yet. If I do a straight up interview with you, I'm laying back because it's not really about me. It's about you. But the podcast has to be more of a conversation. Like we have to work together to create an interesting moment. Now, any sort of TV interview as opposed to a, a print interview is going to be like that. I mean, I'm not going to inject myself that much, but I'm going to inject myself more for a TV interview because I have to be an interesting character in this moment as well as you. Um, so for the podcast, you really have to play off of that and like be like, you know, interesting in of yourself so as time has gone on i've gotten more and more comfortable to talk about different stories that i have experienced that might be relevant in the moment um you know after my dad passed i mentioned that on the show several times it, it, as a way of getting to a question about your family but i'm open about myself where in other mediums i would be less open about me because i'm like it's not about me it's about you do you think i mean but do you think that i mean you know people have seen you on tv i mean does that does that kind of give you a leg up in a in a strange way to 
be more open uh, quicker, I guess, versus like someone who just is coming out of the gate behind, you know, never been on TV before. I mean, uh, you know, I think I understand the interaction a little bit better because I've had that plane of it. Um, I mean, the the thing about television just gets you gets you seen by more people so more people are willing to say yes because they're like i know who that is right. especially if they liked what you had to say on tv i mean it, you know people feel like they know me even though they don't which is great because then they're more likely to say yes i'll talk to you um you know or they you know television is great for making people feel like uh, your friend Right. right. Watch TV generally at home in a relaxed environment. Eating breakfast together. Eating breakfast, eating dinner, whatever it might be. You know, I mean, I, we quite, I quite often, other people quite often, you run into a TV star, or better yet, somebody who was like the third or fourth banana on a show you really like. And you're like, where do I know you from? Did you go to Erasmus High School? Like, did I meet you in that club? Like, did we used to work together? Because you're like, you're part of my life somewhere along the line, right? I mean, people definitely come up to me and be like, did you go to such and such high school? Like, because you think right. you know me, you just can't place it. Um, and you do know me. We've, we've been having this parasocial relationship. I've been on the tube talking, and you've been at home responding. So in your mind, we've had a conversation. Um, I just haven't met you, but as far as you know, we have met when you see a movie star, you have generally this and this and this part of the analogy is breaking down because of the way we consume movies now. But generally, you have left your home and gone to a theater and these people appear to be gigantic. Right. As opposed to television, people who appear small, literally small. Um, you don't when you run into a movie star, you don't mistake that. No, like, right. You know, like, oh, he is an actor. You may not place what was he in or what was she in, but you're like, he's a movie actor. Um, because you're encountering them in a special environment. But for me, you're encountering me in a friendly environment. Like, you feel like you know me. And just, you know, I mean, you know, when you walk in the room and people know who you are, it's a lot easier to get them to say yes or just to even talk to you. And if you uh, live in New York City, then you realize everyone has been in law and order. So yes. the world is yes. just one big yes. law and order's place. Yes. Um, you've done a lot of things, and I wonder if there's one moment for you, whether it's in podcasting or in any sort of interview, that kind of stands out as your kind of like an aha moment, or I had no clue that was about to happen, or kind of a favorite moment, uh, or a story that you just maybe just did not know that kind of like, oh, that's pretty amazing. Well, I mean, it's a tricky question. I mean, you know. That's what I do, tricky questions. <laughs> um, I mean, I definitely always want to find the thing that I would not have known to ask, the thing that journalists would not have known to ask. How do you find that? You have to be super open and listening and aware of everything around you. I remember being out with Beyonce, we're doing a cover story for her in Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone. And just, just so I just enter the situation that she's in, just being like, 
fully aware as if you have like eyes all over your head and just sort of trying to pay attention to everything. And I noticed on her assistant Angela's arm was a tattoo of the word Beyonce. And I was like, you have her name tattooed on your arm? Which is very dangerous because if you don't have the exact right tone, she might have gotten offended by the question. And I don't know if the tone was exactly right because her tone was a little snippy when she was like, I don't think she said you fool, but she said, no, tonally you fool. That's my name. Her name's Angela Beyonce. She's Beyonce's cousin, right? Beyonce is her mother's maiden name. Tina Knowles was born Tina Beyonce. Now, it's not an I. It's, a, it's not an O. It's an I. Wow, right? okay. B-E-Y-I-N-C-E was the actual maternal name. Um, but that led to a conversation short with Beyonce and longer with Tina about the name and how Tina was like, I'm going to name the baby Beyonce. And her dad was like, you can't. That's a last name. <laughs> and like, nobody knows that, daddy. Like, just us. <laughs> Down here in Louisiana. So, um, you know, I, and this was maybe the hundredth profile of Beyonce, but nobody had ever realized that. The origin, origin of her name. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just being super open, you can pick up little things like that that sort of make your story different than everybody else's. How much research are you, I mean, besides that moment, but how much research are you able to do to know that you haven't asked the repetitive question? I feel like it makes some feel like something that's the trick, right? It's just, you don't want to get I, that. I mean, you know, you want to read stuff that other people have written about them. You know, if they've been on the breakfast club, you want to watch their breakfast right. club <laughs> interview. Cause those are always really good. You know, I'll read the Wikipedia. I may go through the Twitter feed I might look at your Instagram feed. Um, you know, I might try to, but then I, I, I'm trying also to speak to you as a real person. These are real people with jobs, right? Being a recording artist is a job, right? If they're not, like if you approach them like, they're a superstar whose aura was so amazing that somebody said, we have to get you on wax and... I mean, like, if you ask them a question about the symbolism of their work or their place in the world, or they can't answer that question because right. they're on stage. They don't see what you see. They're not in the audience seeing Jay-Z. Now, Jay-Z and some have a sharp awareness of how they exist in the world, but still it's going to be different than the audiences. But if you ask him about doing the job, like, how long did it take you? What, how much was the budget? He might not tell you, but like, you know, how are you spending your budget? Like, I remember a great conversation with De La Soul once about how nowadays producers tend to not be in the room with MCs. There's a lot of sending uh, files around. Somebody made a beat, send it to you. But it's it becomes rare that they're all in the same room together, which changes the quality of the music that we're not there together right. like working together and so and just thinking about it as a job rather than like a magical thing that you guys made this amazing song like yeah they're sitting there tinkering from 12 a.m to 4 a.m like what do, how do we do this 
Um, that has been really powerful, just thinking about them in terms of doing a job. And talking to, you know, 10 and then 20 and then 100 recording artists about their job, you learn more about the job, and then you have a broader understanding of how to talk to the next one about the job. Because it's, it's, it's a job, and it has parameters. And if you focus on that, um, you'll get sharper answers, because that's how they experience it. I have two more questions. Yeah. And I, uh, because of, obviously, because of your music background, um, I would love to get your answer on these. Um, yesterday, we lost the Queen of Soul. Yeah. Franklin. Um, she passed away at the age of 76. What was her impact on music, but also on American culture? I mean, you know, Aretha was massive. And one of these people who really is part of the movement from gospel to pop soul music. Because there was a time when the, the church was a much bigger institution in this country gospel was a much bigger thing the pop charts would be filled with uh gospel songs and as you move from the late 50s into the 60s that starts to fade away but songs that are built on a gospel base but are actually soul songs or purportedly soul songs those start to really dominate and a lot of aretha's songs are ready for sunday morning uh, or are taken from either actual gospel songs or songs that could, you know, tropes of gospel, and they make then a love song. Uh, you know, a lot of these songs, she's talking ostensibly about a man, but she could be talking about Jesus. Um, and so she's a critical link in that train that moved from gospel into pop, that transformed gospel into pop soul. And that has faded away in a large sense. But, you know, artists like Al Green, Marvin Gaye, to less to some extent R. Kelly, have taken that forward. Um, but she's a major part of that story. Have you ever had the chance to interview her? Would you, there was there, is there one question that you would want to focus on no i can't think no i i did interview her once we were in detroit with bet for some some extravaganza where there was like all these major recording artists and we we're getting short interviews and i think we did like five minute interviews with everybody but we did like 10 minutes with her and we had to wait until like 11 30 or 12 or whatever to get her i don't remember anything she said i remember standing next to her in this amazing dress and it's like Not that I was nervous, but it was like you just super conscious of like, oh my god. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was exciting. I'm gonna make a poor transition here, but I'm gonna ask you. Uh, I was reading your Twitter feed. Why don't you like cheeseburgers? <laughs> I'm just not into cheese. <laughs> but it's that. But the the question, the issue that I was making was not really about cheeseburgers. It's about language. Right. And why I would have to say, why would I have to follow saying I want a hamburger with no, I don't want cheese? Because I have already said in saying hamburger, I've already answered your question. <laughs> it's a hamburger. I want a hamburger. Are you, do you think that I'm unaware that there's a word cheeseburger? <laughs> you think I don't know that? Like, I, and, and I, I get frustrated 
when language is used in imprecise ways um like when the when the so if i say i want a hamburger why are you asking me if i want cheese on it i've already freaking told you that or like when you go on the plane and they say the plane is completely full Full does not need an adjective. <laughs> Either it's full or it's not. Either you're pregnant or you're not. There's no and there's no need for an adjective. This is like fingernails on the chalkboard to me. It used to be much worse. I don't really get this sort of anxiety and stress around these things now. But I think when I was in my 30s, it was very problematic. It was all the time. I'm like, people are wrecking the language. Uh, you know, it's... it's, it's, it's no, there's no need for an adjective. There's fuller is not. I got in my mind when someone says, honestly, I think this. Like, oh no, like, honestly, no, you don't. So you've been lying to me the whole time? Literally. <laughs> oh, literally. Kills me. <laughs> Most people misuse literally, and we are misusing literally so much that the mistaken uh, uh, explanation or derivation or, 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 or definition is. Uh, Becoming accepted. Right. Most of the time, people mean literally, say literally to really mean like actually or a verbal way of like underlining the word. But like, no, I did not literally make you pull your hair out. <laughs> right. No, I did not. Your hair is all still in your head. Your hand didn't even move to your head. So, no, you did not literally pull your hair out. But you just said, I'm literally pulling my hair out when I'm looking at your hands and they're down by your waist. You literally killed me. You're literally killing me. <laughs> uh, you know, you could never say that. You're literally killing me. No. You would never right. be able to uh, honestly say that unless you're, like, in a movie playing, like, you know, somebody who's dead, right? <laughs> like a ghost, right? Like, otherwise, that would never, you would never, that would never be able to be said. Uh, Torre, it's Dip. been great. Thank you so much for joining me on the Absolutely. library. Uh, Torre Show, it's weekly. Yes. It's a great interview. Uh, I've, I've listened to everything that Thank I can. You. Full. Thank you. Uh, enjoy always talking to you. Thanks so much. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.